Lord, help us concentrate now. Help us to discern your voice. And Lord, I pray that you will speak through the words I say. That you will touch our hearts and change our lives. For your sake we pray. Amen. I've got quite a big task today because I'm introducing a new series. I'm uh, following on um, with the information that you need as a background to this particular subject. And then I'm honing in on that letter to the church in Ephesus. Let's talk about what revelation is. If you look at page 242, we're inclined to call it revelations, but it isn't. It is the revelation to John. The revelation to John. Now, there's discussion, obviously, about who John is, but it's most likely, and I'm going to assume today, that it's the apostle John. He was living on Patmos, the island uh, by the time this is written. It's written down towards the end of the first century, around 96 AD. He's an old man by this time. And we are told that this, in verse 1 of chapter 1 of the Revelation to John, This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So it's not John's revelation, it's Jesus' revelation, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. And then verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And that includes you and I, those who read aloud, those who hear it, and those who keep what is written in it. It's therefore really important that however difficult this revelation may be to read and to understand, that we do try. Revelation is part epistle. Chapters 2 and 3 are letters. That's what epistle means. Letters to seven churches in Asia Minor. But we know that it goes into amazing allegory as well, imagery, And that is apocalyptic. What does that mean? It's around the end times. It's what may happen. Allegorical, fabulous imagery of what may happen at the end. It's therefore really important. We look at it. We try to understand it. But in this series, we are simply concentrating on the letters section. Chapters 2 and three. The revelation is, as one commentator puts it, a divine unveiling of Jesus given by God to his followers. 
Our vision as a church here at St. Andrew's Oxford is that we are followers of Jesus Christ, first and foremost, growing in faith, growing in number, and serving our community. We therefore come into the category of those who need to listen, understand, and act upon what this revelation says. John is writing, as I said, towards the end of the first century AD. It's a time of great upheaval and persecution. The fall of Jerusalem has happened in 70 AD. And now, a few years later, under the Roman Emperor Domitian, there is a lot of persecution. And we see in these letters that some of the churches are undergoing active persecution at the moment. The lampstands, let me just mention lampstands. They have been mentioned in the reading that Adrian gave to us. The lampstands, if you look back in chapter 1 and verse 12, then I, that is John, turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. First thing to note in this allegorical book full of imagery is that those lampstands represent each of the seven churches to whom the seven different letters are written. The seven golden lampstands. So removing a lampstand, which comes up in chapter two in the letter to Ephesus, is not good. And then secondly, in verse 13... In the midst of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man. Now, for those who know your Bibles, that will immediately send you thinking back to Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, where we hear and see this wonderful image of one like the Son of Man, the Ancient of Days, one of the early prefigurings of Jesus who's come into the world to be our saviour. One like the son of man therefore is Jesus. He is there among the seven golden lampstands. He's among the churches. He, a little bit like an end of term report, is now here to give his opinion on those seven golden lampstands, those seven different churches. So John is the conduit. It's Jesus who is speaking to his churches among whom he moves. I hope, I don't want to go any further, but there's a lot more information. And those of you in life groups, you have a whole uh, section on the background. It's really helpful. The cover-to-cover booklet that we're using this term is really useful in the background. If you're not a member of a life group but you would like a copy of that, would you please contact the office and we will make sure you get one as well for your study. So John, the apostle, we think is an elder of this church in Ephesus to whom the first letter is addressed. He therefore knows a lot about what's going on, but these, remember, are Jesus' words. So let's turn now 
to chapter 2 and the first seven verses which Adrian kindly read to us. Oh, can I just mention one thing? These letters sent to the different churches were sent to all of them. So imagine we had a letter sent to us, St. Andrew's Cobham had another sent to them, St. Mary Stoke Dabernon had one sent to them and so on. And on a particular day, the vicars of all those churches read out all of the letters to everybody. So what you've got right and what you've got wrong is not private. (laughs) And we learn about what they've got wrong and what they've got right as well. It's quite a thing, isn't it? End of term reports, Ofsted's, whatever your profession, when you're called to an annual review, it's a bit like that what's happening here in these letters. John is writing the words of Jesus to say, right, this is your progress report. This is a snapshot of where you are, what you're doing right, and what you're doing wrong now. And everybody else hears it too. So, let's see. What does this letter, chapters, chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, say that the Ephesian church is getting right. Look at verse 2 through to verse 3. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. Well, so far, so good. Well done them. Secondly, I know that you cannot tolerate evildoers. You've tested those who claim to be apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. That's a really important thing for this church in Ephesus. When Paul wrote his letter to the Ephesians, which we have as the book of Ephesians, he warned them in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 and 30, he warned the church at Ephesus that there would be those who came to teach false doctrine. And what Paul warned them of has come true. And we find wonderfully that the Ephesian church, this particular lampstand, is proving what's right and what's wrong. They have a real gift of discernment. They are not swayed by false teachers. Let me pick this up as well in verse 6. Yet this is to your credit, John writes, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, it's not clear who these people were, these Nicolaitans, but they are people who taught false doctrines and condoned immoral behavior. So this is a further example of the Ephesian church getting their discernment right. They are remaining true to the gospel. How wonderful. How wonderful that they're working hard, that they are patiently enduring even in the midst of this suffering, about which we have no details here, and that they are discerning Who are the right and who are the false prophets? They are remaining true to the gospel. So 
there's always but, isn't there, in these reports? But, what is it that they're therefore getting wrong? What is it that Christ, through John, is pulling them up on? Verse 4. I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. He goes on, remember then from what you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first and if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. There's a sense in which things have become a duty. They are doing these. They are, I'm fiddling with my phone because I need a tweet to read out with you, to you. They are doing things, but they're doing them out of duty. They've lost their first love. Have you ever fallen in love with anyone? It might have been with a pet when you first met your puppy, some other creature, snakes I gather some people like, can't imagine why. Do you remember that joy, that mixture of of fear, but real joy that, wow, this feeling exists. Wow, I just want this feeling to last forever. I want to stay with my puppy, my partner, whoever it is I've fallen in love with. Spend more time with them. It appears that the people in the church at Ephesus, having once had a real encounter with the Lord Jesus, come to acknowledge their need of him to repent, as John writes here, They repented and they knew that they'd been forgiven. That real joy, the love they had for Jesus because of that, they have abandoned and it's all become a bit dutiful. They're doing things out of duty, not out of love, either for God nor for their neighbour. On Friday, the 30th of December, the Archdeacon of Exeter tweeted this, and it comes from a book written by Howard Thurman. Howard Thurman is an American theologian who was the mentor to Martin Luther King. And Howard Thurman wrote this, When the song of the angels is stilled, when the star in the sky is gone, When the kings and the princes are home, when the shepherds are back with their flock, the work of Christmas begins. We've had the highs. They've had their high. When they first met Jesus, they first repented Remember, he says in verse 5, then from what you have fallen, repent and do the things you did at first. We can only imagine what those might have been, but if they wanted to spend time with Jesus, they would have spent time reading their Bible, 
praying, gathering in groups, sharing the joy that they'd all recently found, meeting for worship, yes, and then to serve other people because their service comes out of love for God and that flows into love for neighbor, rather like our gospel reading, the two main commandments. They have to happen that way round. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. So remember, he says to them, repent and do what you did at first. That's the solution to this loss of their first love. They're doing things out of duty. But it's quite harsh, isn't it? Verse 5 If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, and yes, unless you repent. There's a bit of humility to be learned here, isn't there? They think they've got it right. Okay. So what does this say to us here in Oxshot at the beginning of 2023? There may be masses of things we're getting right. Praise the Lord. But we must remember, like the Ephesian church, not to abandon the love we had at first. All that we do, all the ministries, all the activities, all the serving the community, needs to come out of that relationship with Jesus that we have noted from a particular time or a particular place. And we need at the beginning of this new year to rediscover that joy, to spend the time with Jesus, to rediscover that joy, to come in humility and repent again and say, just as we did in our um, confession, that we tried to do things without him, thinking we could manage without you. Has our work, has our serving turned into duty? Or is our serving a joyful expression of the love we know we received and therefore want to mirror to the people around us? We love We're told in 1 John 4, verse 19, because he first loved us. Even our interview with Mel showed that. They came in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 2 to do homage, proskuneo, to worship God. When they met Jesus, And it's a wonderful phrase because we can't quite do it in English. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And then Matthew 2.11, falling down on their knees, they worshipped him. That's where our love begins. The worship of God, rejoicing exceedingly with great joy because of all that he has done for us. That's by grace, not merit. So I finish simply by asking this rhetorical question. 
Would you consider at the beginning of this new year whether you've had a moment in your life when you have acknowledged that Jesus Christ is Lord of your life. He is worthy of your worship and love. And have you remembered this? And do you need to repent again? Remember the enthusiasm you had once for prayer, reading the Bible, meeting other Christians, worship, and yes, for service. Old age is no barrier to that relationship with the Lord. (laughs) Thank you, Arthur. Yes. We don't retire from being a Christian. We're a Christian until the moment we die and then we go to be with him, together with him in fullness of life. So don't let's sit here and think, well, I'm too old for this. You're not. Let's ask God to show us in our hearts. We don't need to tell other people perhaps what what we're getting right, but where we're getting it wrong. Have we abandoned our first love? Is our service out of duty or is it out of the overflowing joy of knowing ourselves loved and forgiven? Let me pray. Father, thank you for this revelation to John given first to these churches and then through time to us. Thank you for these words which sometimes feel muddled and confusing. We pray, Lord, that you will help us understand better. Thank you that you move among the churches like you did as the son of man, like the Son of Man amongst the golden lampstands, that you are here, God with us. And we offer you our church, our community of faith here, and ask you, Lord, to deal graciously with us. We come to you in humility, acknowledging that we don't get it all right. But please, Lord, today, would you help us, like the church in Ephesus, to remember not to abandon our first love. And Lord, we pray for anyone here who feels they haven't even taken that initial step. We pray by your spirit, they will come to you in humility and repentance and that then they may know the joy of being your child. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his word. Amen.